0: Tonight we begin with judgment, we end with grace, we begin with a kingdom falling apart, we end with a house raised up. Father, we know that your word tells us you will raise up the fallen booth of David. We know that your word promises a glorious kingdom ahead not the stuff of man, not the things that we perhaps could make up or dream up or fantasize about, but an absolute spiritual, physical reality. Your kingdom will come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus prayed. I'm so excited for that, Father. I so look forward to those days but you have us in these days at this time. And so we pray, Father, you will do whatever it takes, whatever you need to, to continue to sanctify our hearts, to continue to prepare our minds, to prepare our spirits, Lord, for for battle if need be, for defense of the Gospel if need be. Prepare us, Father, to go out armed with the Scriptures, the sword of the Word of God, with the Spirit of peace, with prayer, As our strength, going out, Father, in love and joy and in peace. And Father, teach us, and may your word be more than simply a reading, more than a recital, more than a lecture, Father, far more than that. We come before you to receive your word as food for our lives, as that which is greater than bread which does not sustain us like Your Word does. We pray for sustenance. We pray for life. And we ask Your Spirit now to be our Rabbi in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalneh and look and go from there to Hamat the Great and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity? And would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock then calves from the midst of the stall, Who improvise to the sound of the harp, and like David, have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls, while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawlers' banqueting will pass away. He's got such a flair for words. Or not Amos, but the Holy Spirit. The sprawler's banquet. I just like the sound of that. It's so descriptive of a lazy people lounging in their depravity. And that's what he comes out describing with this woe at the beginning of chapter 6. The sheep herder takes on the heads of state. Amos begins to call out and call down those leaders... They're in the land who are lounging in their sin. This is a dire warning to what you could call the distinguished power players in in, in Samaria. (laughs) To those who are comfortable in their laziness. But note this, that at the very beginning he mentions both Zion and Samaria. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria. He's speaking now both to Judah and Israel. Now, Amos was called from Judah to prophesy to Israel, for the most part. But we get down to the last part of his prophecy, the last parts of his book, and he begins to broaden the message. The Spirit now is going to speak to larger than simply Israel, the northern kingdom, He's going to broaden it out to include Judah, the southern kingdom, all of the people of God. The prophecy ends there, as we shall see. But the Lord begins by calling out these lazy brutes. And He says, check out Calneh and Hamat. Go take a look at those. Now, if we heard this message from Amos back in the day, we could hop on a camel. I wouldn't advise it. But you could do that. And you could go check out Calneh and Hamat. City-states of the Arameans. By this time, completely wiped out. Non existent. Shalmaneser III of Assyria wiped them out somewhere between 852 and 847. There's a whole campaign of the Assyrians against the Arameans at that time. And these two major city states were completely razed to the ground. And God says, Go check them out. How'd they fare? Are you better than they are, Israel? And he says, go to Gath. Gath is the one city of the Philistines. There were five primary cities of the Philistines. Gath is the one that did not survive at this time. Gath is the one that, like Chalnai and Hamath, were wiped out. Gath was wiped out by the Aramaean king Hatzael in about 815 BC. So in both cases, the prophet, the spirit, inspires the prophet to reach, reach back to recent memory and say, remember what happened to these three cities? You think you're any better, and then he gets personal. Then he starts to call out They're sprawling in their self-deceptive security. You're chilling now. You're, you're, You're sprawling. The Hebrew word for sprawl here, serach, it means loosely spread over something. You might use the word for a bedspread that you just kind of threw down. You didn't have time to tuck it in. You just threw it across the bed. It's hanging out there, and you can imagine someone, a couch potato... You know the scene from Toy Story? One of the greatest movies of all time. (laughs) Where uh, the toy guy who has got Woody and he wants to sell him. Maybe it's Toy Story 2. Yeah, it's Toy Story 2. The collector who's gonna sell Woody and the other toys to the toy museum in Japan. It's a, it's a riveting, riveting story. (laughs) But there's a scene where he's lying sound asleep, sprawled on his couch, and he's got, uh, not Doritos, he's got cheese puffs. Cheetos, right? Laying all on them, and they're all over the floor, and it's on his hand, and it's on his mouth, and it's just, that's what we're talking about here. Okay, that's the picture of sprawling in the Hebrew. To overhang or to hang over, either way it works, it's those whose security is measured in leisure and luxury. Those who kick back and say, look at what I drive. Look at where I live. I am so blessed. I must be doing it all right. Sarak, the sprawlers. These are also those who are apathetic to the Word of God. They're just too relaxed. They're too kicked back. And in fact, each of the behaviors that are listed in verses 4-6 through 6 are not only lazy, but they betray a direct defiance to God. Look at each one of them. In verse 4, they're chilling on beds of ivory. Chilling on beds of ivory instead of coming to the mercy seat. Instead of coming to the one piece of furniture above which the Lord Himself dwells to bring them the mercy that they so desperately need but don't recognize. latter half of verse 4 says they're chowing on the best veal and lamb chops. My translation. Eating lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall, that young tender meat. They're eating it instead of offering the best of the land to the Lord. They're composing music, verse 5, like David. That word composing is is an interesting word. It means either composing music or constructing instruments. But what it's saying here is they're, they're developing music. They're improvising. It's jazz. They're totally into it. They've composed songs for themselves, and that's the issue. You see, David composed songs for the Lord. David was a writer of worship. Their compositions were a soundtrack for wickedness. And then verse 6 says they are drinking from sacrificial bowls and anointing themselves with the finest of oils. They're, they're chugging wine from sacrificial bowls. The word in the Hebrew there is mizrakim and it means sprinkling basins. So what they're doing is they're taking these silver sprinkling dishes and drinking out of them when the dishes were created for, developed for, made for the sprinkling of sacrificial blood on the altar. And yet they're drinking from them. It's defiance to the things of God. Even the anointing. They're anointing themselves with the finest of oils rather than bringing the oils and offering to the Lord. Total disregard for godliness and mocking the very worship of God by their lifestyles. Now, you might ask the question, did they know they were doing it? I don't think they did. Now some, I'm sure, were in absolute abject rebellion. They were just saying, don't want God, don't want anything to do with God, whatever, religion, you know, down the drain, all that. And there are those people in the world today who are very outspoken, anti-Christian, anti-God. There are a lot of people in the world today who just aren't really anti-anything. Coexist. (laughs) There are those who just, whatever you want to do, whatever he wants to do, whatever she wants to do, and whatever, it's all good, i got my couch. I'm just going to chill. It's all good for me here. Just leave me alone. There are those in the church who don't realize that their laziness is a mockery to God. Now, I wouldn't assume it was any of you. Now, some of those Sunday morning people. (laughs) I don't see that. I don't see that in a people who are showing up to feast on the Word of God. I don't see that in a people who show up to worship God who want to give their hearts to God. And I see so much here in our fellowship going that direction, and it it thrills me to no end. But in the church there are those. Well, Paul had to correct it. In the Corinthian church, he had to correct the mindset of laziness that ultimately was mocking worship. I think unintentionally among the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.20, he said, When you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Can you imagine getting drunk? See, that's why we have those really tiny little cups. So you can't get... No, that's not why. Can you imagine showing up for a Sunday morning and passing around the jug? And half the people, the wealthy people who brought the wine, who paid for the wine, getting drunk on it while everybody else is going, I didn't get breakfast, could I just have some bread? Is there, is there some, for me, perhaps... And this was going on at Corinth. I'm sure it didn't start out that way. I'm sure it started out as a love feast. Let's gather together. Let's break bread. Let's be in fellowship. Let's take communion and remember the Lord together. But ultimately, the sin nature began to get in there, and Paul had to call them out. In fact, he even says, and I think he says it the way we say it today, 1 Corinthians 11.22, What? 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 Let me read this in context. In your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Paul says? Maybe you're not hearing it the way I am, but that's what I hear. (laughs) Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? And I bet you there were people in Corinth right there going, I had no idea. That is not... I'm so sorry. And in fact, we know... There were people that way because the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul comes back and says, you guys repented, praise the Lord. But it happens all around us and it's this, it's this mentality. Look, I, I love a good meal. You know this. I've talked about it. I love good company. I love good humor. But being God's people is not a license to a laissez-faire attitude. And that's what's going on here. Amidst all the sin of Israel, God's picking this one to call out. You're lazy. And in your laziness, you are mocking the things of God. You're indulging self while neglecting others. And that mocks me, the Lord would say. And Jesus warned that His coming would be just like this, like the days of Noah. That He would show up and this is what the world would look like. Laissez-faire. Matthew 24.38 They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. See, that's the scary part right there. They did not understand until the flood came. Truly, they were clueless about their sin and their wickedness and their evil and their rebellion to God. They just weren't thinking about it. They're just living life, doing their thing. And they were taken away. And God says, it's going to be like that. Jesus says, I'm going to show up. I'm going to call out my church and there are going to be people standing there going, what? I I didn't know that He was coming. By the way, you can add one more thing that is an absolute mockery to the Lord. Look down in verse 6. Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. I have that underlined in my Bible. It is one of so many verses that calls us, I believe today, to have a right attitude toward Israel. They have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. I wonder how many Americans this week grieved over the fact that more Kassam rockets were fired into Israel. I wonder how many Americans grieved over the three still-missing teenagers who were kidnapped, probably by Hamas, How many people are grieving for the incredible anti-Semitic pressure that is coming upon Israel and the Jewish people around the world? Do you grieve over these things? They have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Israel then was negligent to both who they were and what they would ultimately become. They were negligent regarding their own ruin, but again there are those today who could care less what happens to Joseph. Who don't give a rip about Israel. I've mentioned this before, I'll say it one more time and I'll try not to say it again, but I may. The BDS movement, if you've heard about it, it stands for Boycott, Divest, Sanction. Boycott Israel and all products Israeli. Divest any monies that have been invested in companies that have to do with Israel and sanction Israel in your finances and in your behavior and in what you do. And there are churches lining up to sign on to the BDS movement. Churches who engage in this could care less about the ruin of Joseph. And yet note this in verse seven, therefore they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles. They will move right up to the straight, straight to the front line of judgment. I think hell's got a hot place for those who don't care about God's people. Well, that's your opinion, Rick. Yes, it is. And I backed it up with Scripture. (laughs) Verse 8. After saying the sprawler's banqueting will pass away, the Lord God has sworn by Himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared. By the way, when God swears by Himself, the Hebrew writer tells us it is absolutely ironclad. Because He swears by the only one that is absolutely true. And so he swears by himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains. Now some might say, well, wait a minute. He's the one ruining Joseph. And he's judging those who don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. I guarantee you, God grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Even as he brought the punishment like a father who does not want to spank his child who does not want to employ punishment. That's the part of parenting parents. Can I get an amen on this? That's the part I hate. I don't like the punishment factor. I don't enjoy it. These are my kids. I love them. And so it is with the Lord. Yes, He inflicts the punishment, but absolutely don't miss that He grieves over having to give it. Verse 9, "...it will be if ten men are left in one house." They will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker, we'll call him Uncle Undertaker, will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house, and he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, is anyone else with you? And that one will say, no one. And then he will answer, keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. Uncle Undertaker. He comes in to carry off the dead. And the word uncle there is is a good translation. It's the father's brother. Or the nearest kin whose responsibility is when someone dies to come and carry them off. But it's interesting, the word undertaker here in the Hebrew is literally one who burns. This is the uncle who comes to burn. Well, if you know anything about Judaism, you know the Jewish people don't burn. They bury that they don't use uh, cremation. Now, I'm sure some out there do, but the primary burial method historically and even presently for Jewish people is burial, not cremation. And yet here comes the uncle undertaker, the uncle who burns. Why? The picture given here is the body count is too high for burial. That as Assyria is going to demolish Israel, there will be so many dead There's no time, there's no place for burial, and therefore it will be cremation. But why is the name of the Lord not to be mentioned? Why does Uncle Undertaker say, shh, don't mention his name, don't speak the name of the Lord? That word there uh, where he says the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned, you could also translate that not to be invoked. Because by now, no prayer is going to be heard. It's too late to pray. But more than that, what Uncle Undertaker is saying is you don't want to draw the Lord's attention to your survival. If you're surviving in a house, shh, don't say anything. Because if you do, you will make the Lord aware of you and you will not survive. That's kind of the idea. Now that's, that's not good theology. It's a picture that the prophet is giving of this uncle who's come in and of the attitude of the people and the idea here is none will survive verse 12 do horses run on rocks or does one plow them with oxen Yet you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, you who rejoice in Lodabar, and say, Have we not by our own strength taken Karneim for ourselves? Now Spurgeon tells us about verse 12 that Amos takes two proverbs and puts them together. These two proverbs about the horse running on rocks or the oxen plowing a stony field... They commonly were used to signify, Spurgeon says, that men do not, as a rule, continue to labor in vain and spend their strength for naught. You're not going to do something that is no good to do, that is a waste of your time. And Israel it did just that. They were spending their strength for naught. Their justice perverted into poison. Their righteousness is as bitter as wormwood. And so he says, you rejoice in lo-debar. What low lo-debar? The Hebrew word lo means no. And debar is words. No words or empty words. You rejoice in emptiness. Your words are a vain thing. They mean nothing. And you're boasting in imaginary military might. Have we not by our own strength taken carneim for ourselves? Karnaim. In the Hebrew means horns. I'm giving you a lot of Hebrew, just jot it down and we'll move on. Karnaim means horns and it indicated power and authority, like the horn of David means the authority of David. But in this case, they're claiming authority, and yet Karnaim was also an Aramaean city that Jeroboam II conquered. And in conquering Karneim, he extended Israel's might and influence, and they're proud of that. And they're saying, look at our military might. And look at our comfort. Did you just, by the way, notice my ivory couch? And look at how we're living. And you're coming here telling us, warning us of judgment, but we're stronger now, greater now, richer now than we've ever been. Remember, that's the backdrop of of Amos' prophecy. And the Lord says, your words and your boasts are absolutely empty. Verse 14, For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, Adonai Yahweh Saba, the Lord God of armies. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamat to the brook of the Arabah. And that is very specific because those are the exact boundaries that Jeroboam II increased Israel to include. 2 Kings 14, verse 25, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamat as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. In other words, every inch, every uh, speck of ground that was gained is now lost. It's all going to go away. Now, that sets us up for the final five visions of the book. Amos receives five very powerful visions, each, I believe, more powerful than the one prior. Let's walk through these five visions. And note this, something amazing is about to take place between the sheep herder and the sovereign Lord. Vision number one in chapter seven, you can jot this down, a disastrous locust swarm. A disastrous locust swarm. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. The king's mowing, basically it was, it was first pickings. The king got first pickings of the crops, oftentimes for military animals, for the horses, for whatever animals were used in service of the country. King gets first pickings, and then immediately after that is the actual harvest of the people. So in between these two, Amos gets this vision of this massive locust swarm and it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Amos sees this swarming locust army coming on and says, Lord, we can't take this. It's the worst time of year for a locust swarm. And God goes, okay, and changes his mind. Second vision, a devastating firestorm. Verse 4, thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep. That would be the Mediterranean. Okay, The vision is a fire so powerful, so great, it licks up the Mediterranean Sea. And it consumed and began to consume the farmland. And I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he is small? The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. What? I love the relationship between Amos and the Lord. And we only get a little picture. And I think it's right here. Not only do we know that Amos is a humble guy, but look at how he talks to the Lord. He pours out his heart to him. He he reasons with him. He speaks directly. He gets these great visions and rather than lying on his couch and just going, oh, that was so intense, he's up saying, Lord, please, no, don't do this. And God changes his mind because of the prayerful plea of a shepherd from Tekoa. kind of reminds me that it really doesn't matter who you are. That if you are praying, if you come before the Lord, if you're one of His own, and you bring a petition to Him, He hears you. God listens. And everything you hear out in the world contrary to that is a lie. Well, God doesn't really listen. If He listens to you, why would He allow this to happen in your life? He's listening. Well, if He really heard, then how come this or that or the other? He listens. He has heard you. But can you change God's mind? Scriptures tell us in 1 Samuel 15.29, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. And yet, Amos changed God's mind. That's exactly what the Scriptures say. You can say, well, the Hebrew word for change really means relented. Same idea. Same thing. I'm going to do this? Oh, you don't want me to? I relent. He changed his mind. Moses changed God's mind. Do you remember that scene? Comes down off the mountain, Mount Horeb, and after receiving the Ten Commandments, comes walking down the mountain, God says there's a noise of partying in the camp, he sees the party, Moses is beside himself, and the Lord says, that's it, I'm done. I'm through, Israel out of the pool. Everybody out, that's it. We're done here, I'm killing them all. And Moses gets between God and Israel. You want to talk about a gutsy? I think possibly the gutsiest move in all history, Moses stands up and says, Lord, no, far far be it from you to do such a thing and for all the nations to see you do this to your own people. And this is after God promised Moses, hey, I'll just give it to you. You'll be my new Abraham. And everybody after that would be singing, Father Moses has many sons. Many <laughs> sons have Father Moses. You know, because Abraham would have been done. Now he says, I'll do it through you. Moses says, no, Lord, and the Lord, Exodus 32, 14, changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Okay, so in one place, the the word says God does not change his mind. And with Moses and with Amos, we see him changing his mind. How do we reconcile that with the word of God? We reconcile it with another word, and the word is intercessor intercessor. I want you to understand what intercessory prayer is. We were talking about this earlier as we prayed. Intercessory prayer is praying the heart of God. I think in its simplest form, it is praying the heart of God. It is prayer for someone else that comes first from God and then returns to God. That you know what to pray for someone because the Lord has directed you to do so. And then you pray... In essence, the Lord's will because He's already told you this is what I want you to pray so you pray it and that's intercessory prayer. Les refers to this as as bringing down into the now the will and intent, the purposes of God. That's what you're doing when you enter into intercessory prayer to pray directly in His will. David Guzik says this is another amazing example of how much rests on prayer. Just as we were talking about on Sunday, prayer is far more critical to the Christian life than I think most of us have understood it to be. He says, We may debate endlessly on how this incident reflects on the issues of predestination and human responsibility, but clearly we are left with the impression that the plague was held back by the prophet's prayer. Did Amos change God's mind? From Amos' perspective, yes. But from God's perspective, Amos was just praying the will of God. As he interceded for the people, he was praying the will of God. He was in sync with God's heart. If he hadn't been in sync with God's heart, I guarantee you, the locust plague would have come. Or the fire would have swept the land. So what's God doing? He's working with Amos. And He's working through Amos to perfect, to finish His will. And He does the same with you and with me when we pray. It is one of the ways that God gets intimate with us. Calls us into prayer with Him so that we might work with Him and for Him be uh, messenger boys as it were, messenger girls for the Lord. And as we do so, guess what? We get caught up in what He's doing. What a marvelous place to be. Intercession. God places a high, I would say the highest value on intercessory prayer. Later, he's going to tell Jeremiah, don't intercede for the people of Judah. Do not pray for them. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 6. Why? Because if Jeremiah starts to pray for the people, the Lord's going to have to do something with that. And God says, don't do it. No more prayer. You see, the Lord listens to prayer. And as the Lord relents, we realize something absolutely marvelous here, and that is that intercession yields grace. Intercession yields compassion. And we have the perfect example of intercessory compassion in Jesus. He's doing it right now. He is interceding for the saints according to the will of God right now. Romans eight thirty three, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? And John says in 1 John chapter two verse one, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so Amos is simply functioning as an intercessor. A go-between for the people. And the Lord recognizes that. As He did with Moses. But gang, righteousness is the issue. Our great intercessor, I, I love how John refers to Him, He's not just Jesus Christ, He's Jesus Christ the righteous. The righteous one has the right to intercede on behalf of another. Well, then I can't intercede. Yeah, you can if you're covered with the righteous blood of Jesus. Because if you're righteous in Christ, now you can righteously intercede for somebody else. And righteousness is the issue. Vision number three. A delineating plumb line. A delineating plumb line. Verse 7. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in His hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line? And the Lord said... Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. Here's the result. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. And then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. A plumb line delineates the straightness of a wall. You drop the line to see if the wall is actually straight. And Israel was measured and was not True to plumb. They're crooked. They're not straight. And a crooked wall is going to fall. And Israel will fall. By the way, note this. He says in verse 9, the high places of Isaac will be desolated. And you know what I think is going on here? I think when he says the high places of Isaac, he's making a comparison. Think back. What was the highest place of Isaac. Mount Moriah, right? Mount Moriah, where Isaac was almost sacrificed. Where Abraham was called by the Lord to take Isaac his son and go up on the mountain that he would show him and sacrifice him there. And Abraham was willing and ready to do it, believing in resurrection. He didn't do it. God stays his hand. And it's a picture for us, Genesis 22, a powerful picture of another father who did not stay his hand when his son was killed as Jesus went to the cross. Compare that. The high places of Isaac will be desolated. You no longer think about the fact that sacrifice is unto me. You now have all kinds of high places and they're in Isaac's name. Talk about mocking the things of God. And it is entirely possible, though I don't have any proof of this, it's entirely possible that the people of Israel called some of their high altars high places of Isaac. Because they honored their heritage. They loved their heritage. Remember, we talked about that on Sunday. That's why they go down to Beersheba. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the well. That's our thing. Those are our guys. Isaac, Isaac, he's our man. So they like to call on the name. But they were doing so in a complete mockery, and the plumb line was completely off. What is God's plumb line? What's His plumb line? Isaiah 28:17 tells us I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. So for God the plumb line is righteousness. Perfection. To be righteous is to be right with God. Are you? That's the question. Are you right with God? That's always the question. That's the ultimate question. That's the one that gets you in or gets you out. Are you right with God? And you all know, if I were to stand up before Jesus, if I were to approach the gate on my own righteousness, I would not be true to plumb, I would not be right with God. I am right with God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He makes me righteous. By His doing. 1 Corinthians 1.30 You are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I am only right with God, only true to plumb because of Christ in me. And He makes me straight. And straight's a good thing. In more ways than one. (laughs) The intercession... Of Jesus Christ is backed by the full faith and credit of His own blood. And it makes us right. Verse 10. Then Amaziah, priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam. We saw this story a couple of weeks ago. The king of Israel saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all His words. I love that. What, the words of a sheepherder? You can't handle those words? A little too much for you there, priestie? This guy is, is like the... He, he is the high priest at Bethel. Now he's a false high priest because Bethel is a false altar. Now he's the big wig of the, origi- of the religious elite. And this podunk little fig picker comes up from Tekoa. And our land can't handle his words. Powerful words. For thus Amos said... Now this is Amaziah still speaking in verse 11 to Jeroboam. Amos says Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. And by the way, Amaziah is lying. Because Amos didn't say that. Yes, Amos said the land would go into exile, but he never once said Jeroboam is going to die by the sword. So what's the point? Well, heretics often stretch the truth against men of integrity. They often will say some of what the person of integrity is saying, but they'll throw in something else to make it just a little more wonky, a little strange, a little more threatening than it really is. And that's what this Amaziah is trying to do with Amos. A little bit of truth and a little bit of lying. And by the way, brothers and sisters, the best possible response, when someone goes after you and they're saying some of what you said, but also lying about other things that you didn't say... Your best response is humble honesty. Humble honesty. You don't defend yourself, let God be your shield. You just humbly say, that's not what I said. This is what I said. And you stand by that word. And by the way, if the word is the word of truth, you're in good shape. Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread and do there and there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. And then Amos replied to Amaziah, Note this, humble honesty. He says, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. Now I would disagree because this guy had the lion's roar. This guy was a prophet, big time, called by God, and yet he's not claiming the title. He's not looking for a title. He's not saying, I belong, I've got the degrees, I've got the background, I went to cemetery, I've got it all going on here. You know, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. Here comes the honesty. You are saying you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you, shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city, your sons and daughters will fall by the sword, your land will be parceled up by measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Humble honesty. Amos never backs down from the message. He gives it straight and true. He nails it, and he nails Amaziah in the process. But he does it with absolute humility. It is not an issue of Amos. It is not about who Amos is or what Amos might accomplish. It doesn't matter if his name is being spurned by this Amaziah. What matters is that the truth of God is told. And that's what Amos does. All he needed to do was humbly speak the word he had been given. And by the way, that's all you need to do. Just speak the word you've been given. Luke 12.11 tells us when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I need to point something out to you that I hadn't seen before. He doesn't say don't worry about Bible study because God will tell you what you need to say anyway. He doesn't say, don't worry about spending lots of time in prayer because you'll get it when you need it. He says very specifically, Jesus says, don't worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense. Don't map out a defense strategy for yourself. So what's the point, Rick? The point is, don't map out a defense strategy, but by all means, be in the Word. Give the Holy Spirit something to draw from in your spirit. The more filled up I am with the Word of God, now now I guarantee you the Spirit will use what you got. So if you only have one or two little verses, He'll use them and He'll use them powerfully. But my way of thinking is, man, be constant in the Word, be constant in prayer, and let the Lord deal with the heretics and the hassles. You just focus on knowing Him. And if you find yourself in that place where you're under attack, He'll give you what you need to say. He'll bring the right words at the right time. Vision number four. A delicious basket of fruit. Verse 1, chapter 8, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, What do you see, Amos? And I said... A basket of summer fruit. the, The obvious is not lost on Amos. And the Lord said to me, The end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence. What does that have to do with a basket of summer fruit? Perhaps you've wondered that. You run across verses like this. And you see this and say okay that's weird and then just keep on going because you know obviously we don't understand a couple of things there's a hebrew wordplay going on here summer the word summer is kayitz in the hebrew if you want to write this down it would be like q a y i t s Kayitz. that's the word summer the hebrew word end is kets q e t s Kayitz Ketz. Kayitz Ketz. It's, it's like a, a poetic play on words where he's saying the summer, a basket of summer fruit, a, a basket of Kayitz. And the end has come. The Ketz has come. So that's part of what's happening that we don't see because we're not right reading it in Hebrew. But here's the issue. Summer fruit is ripe and ready to be eaten. Summer fruit is no longer needs to be on the tree. In fact, any fruit in the summertime that's still on the tree is falling off and is and is rotting. It doesn't last long. Summer fruit is at its end. And that's the point. Here's a basket of summer fruit. It is Israel at the end. Hey, summer fruit can look good. Basket of summer fruit on the counter there? Apples and, and oranges? Mm, grapes and bananas sitting out can look ripe and ready? That's the thing about bananas. <laughs> Once they're ripe and really good to eat, you got a day, maybe. And then it's over. And then it's, you know, banana bread or something. And that's what He's saying. We're right at the end here. Looks good. Looks great today. Remember, Israel's strong, rich, and everything's happening good. They look like summer fruit. Looks great today. It will be rotten tomorrow. By the way, One more thing to note about this delicious basket of summer fruit. Summer fruit is a specific kind of produce in the Scriptures. Anyone guess what summer fruit is? Just take a wild guess. Israel summer fruit hmm? figs. It's a basket of figs. How do we know that? second Samuel 16 verse 1 Isaiah 16 verse 9 Isaiah 28 verse 4 look them up on your own time they all refer to summer fruit as being figs and Jesus comes along and you know where I'm going Matthew 24:32 he says learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves you know that summer is near So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near right at the door. The summer fruit is a symbol, a picture, that the end is right there. The fig. The fig tree. Planted in the land. Suddenly blooming. Suddenly blossoming. Suddenly putting forth its tender leaves. We were in Jordan a couple of trips ago, walking through Petra. Petra's just that rock-walled, rose-red city. You know, you walk through there, you've seen it, if you've seen Indiana Jones, it's, it's about as thrilling in person as it is in the movie, you know, it's like, okay, wow, neat, okay, wonderful. How long are we gonna be here? No, it, it was cool, it was cool to see it, and, and there are all kinds of possibilities for Petra, biblically speaking. But I'm walking through, I'm coming back out of Petra, and it's a, several miles walking out, and I'm walking along, and all of a sudden, I came upon a fig tree. Growing out of the rock, in full bloom I took a picture of it it's on my iPhone I'm like no way how cool is that what a picture picture of what Rick a picture of the end because Israel became a nation again in 1948 and many of us believe the fig tree the parable of the fig tree speaks exactly of that that suddenly out of nowhere as if out of rock Israel just became a nation it put forth its branches its leaves More tender, the summer fruit appearing upon the branches. And Jesus says, When you see this, you know summer is near. You know the end is at the door. You're right there. Summer, Kyitz, is a clear indication of Ketz, the end. And my friends, as far as I can tell, the fruit is getting ripe.